0: This spring, my colleague, the Reverend um, Dr. Barbara Queeman and I have been invited to uh, return to Wesley Theological Seminary to co-teach Unitarian Universalist history and polity. I would think most of you know what history is. Uh, some of you may know what polity is. It comes from the same uh, Greek root polis as politics. So you know, how do we do governance? How do we structure ourselves? We taught this class once before, three years ago, and I'm grateful for an opportunity to revisit UU history in depth. As Unitarian Universalists, we formally recognize six sources, our own direct experience, what we know to be true because we've experienced it for ourselves, words and deeds of activists for peace and justice, wisdom from all the world's religions, but also specifically the Jewish and Christian teachings, which are our most direct heritage but also humanist teachings uh, and science, and finally the earth-centered traditions. But as is mentioned occasionally, we might benefit as a movement from explicitly adding a seventh source, our own Unitarian Universalist history and heritage, the inspiring figures, the cautionary tales, the stories of how and why we came to be, how our tradition came to be. which we we as a future-oriented people sometimes forget to look back at the past. One major change from the last time that I co-taught this class is that this past spring, Skinner House Books, which is the UUA's imprint for uh, Unitarian Universalist-specific materials, published the first comprehensive collection of primary sources from UU history. I know you're all writing it down for your holiday list, right? It's called A Documentary History of Unitarian Universalism. You can't go wrong with a sexy title like Documentary History. (laughs) Volume 1 is From the Beginnings to 1899, Volume 2, 1900 to the Present. Together, the two volumes weigh in at slightly more than 1,100 pages. And only $20 each, though. That's not bad. You get a a lot of bang for U.S. history for your 40 bucks. And I'm toying with the idea of offering a parallel UU history class at UUCF this spring. There'd be no grades, no papers, but a decent amount of reading. Uh, if that sounds like your idea of a good time, let me know. It is my idea of a good time. Uh, but if there isn't a critical mass of people with time and energy around reading lots of UU history this spring, no worries. Traveling to D.C. Um, once a week for 12 weeks is probably plenty. The the advantage of co-teaching is half the about half the time I don't have to go so that's a, that's a good thing the students though do have to show up are they better now I've preached a fair amount of UU history sermons over the past few years but starting this year I'm going to experiment with an intentional pattern of scheduling um, UU history topics at two um, specific points. Yesterday, for example, September 30th, was the 247th anniversary of John Murray preaching the first Universalist sermon in America. You'll hear more about that occasion as we approach 2020, which will be the 250th anniversary. And I'd like to use that anniversary as a regular occasion to reflect on what lessons are there from the Universalist half of our UU heritage. Uh, the Unitarians and the Universalists, Universalists didn't merge until 1961. So there's a lot of history on both sides of that divide prior to that. But before going too deeply into Universalism this morning, I'd be remiss if I failed to follow up on a promise that I made a few weeks ago. Um, when we were focusing a few Sundays ago on Islam, we reflected on what are the highlights that we're learning about Muslims in America in this new major survey, America's Changing Religious Identity, who uh, was just published in early September. So that Sunday I looked at some highlights about Islam, so it's only fair as we prepare to look at our own heritage that I turn the mirror on us. I'll limit myself just to six highlights. The first is that Jews... Hindus and Unitarian Universalists are the most educated groups in the American religious landscape. More than one-third of Jews, Hindus, and Unitarian Universalists, it's actually 43% of Unitarian Universalists, hold postgraduate degrees. No religious group has a higher proportion of members with postgraduate degrees than Unitarian Universalists. Nearly two-thirds of UUs have a college education, including more than four in ten who have advanced degrees. But it's important, I'm going to do this a few times, to contextualize these statistics and also to to flip them and read them the other way. Because although it may be true that UUs among U.S. religious groups may have by far the single highest percentage of members with postgraduate degrees, more than half of UUs don't have postgraduate degrees. More than one-third don't have a college degree. So that what you can start to see there as you read the statistic both ways is that much more important than... pieces of paper on your wall is are you open-minded are you curious are you interested in lifelong learning which is what this one of the things this congregation can provide The second of the six statistics I wanted to share is that Unitarian Universalists are also older than members of other religious groups. The median age is 54 years. I'm not saying that's old, I'm just saying it's older, right? So I always get in trouble when I talk about age. So uh, this is the same as the, just quoting the statistics, this is the same as the median age generally of white mainline Protestants and slightly younger than the median age of white evangelical Protestants and white Catholics. It's not surprising that we're essentially the same as most white mainline Protestants. The third is that the gender imbalance is fairly prominent among Unitarian Universalists, among whom two-thirds are women. But with that statistic, we could note that the Unitarian Universalist Association is also the only U.S. denomination in which women represent a majority of ministers. The only one. The only others that are anywhere close are around a third. So if you look at the United Church of Christ, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Presbyterian Church, Reformed Judaism, about a third of clergy are women. For UUs, it's for quite a while now, been well over half. Fourth, uh, Unitarian Universalists, as in bulk, are fairly well off financially. That being said, among UUs, 18% report living in households making less than 30000 annually. 22% are the other extreme with incomes exceeding 100000 So we have a bulk in the middle, but also significant numbers on both extremes. The fifth of the six statistics, Buddhists and Unitarian Universalists have a much higher proportion of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender members than other religious traditions. One in seven Buddhists, as well as about 14% of Unitarian Universalists, identify as LGBTQ. We can carry on with the alphabet soup. Uh, six, no religious group is as, no religious group is as politically progressive as Unitarian Universalists. Seventy percent of Unitarian Universalists identify as politically progressive. For those interested in studying these statistics, but then again, 30% don't, right? So you can read all these statistics the other way. For those interested in studying these statistics more closely, I'll link to the full survey, America's Changing Religious Identity, or our Google overlords are keeping track of all this. So you can just Google America's Changing Religious Identity. It'll come up, but I'll link to it in the manuscript version of this sermon that we post each week on our website. And I think it's important to say that reflecting on our demographics as a religious movement is appropriate on a Sunday when we are focusing on this universalist half of our heritage. How well are we and aren't we doing in trying to have not a small umbrella, not a medium sized umbrella, but really an umbrella that welcomes all people. I think there's ways in which we're succeeding. There's ways in which we have work to do. Because the universalist half of our heritage contains within it a challenge to continually widen our circles of compassion and care and expanding circles of inclusion until we hopefully mature into a movement that is fully worthy of a name like universalism. And taking the long view that we can see that from the late 18th century to today... Universalism has evolved from this focus on universal salvation in the next world for all people to a universal call to love the hell out of this world. To give you two broad strokes of that evolution, I mentioned earlier that John Murray, known as the father of American universalism, arrived in the North American colonies from England in 1770, so six years before the American Revolution. His message of universal salvation was life-changing for many people who at that time were accustomed to pretty much hearing a lot of hellfire, brimstone, and damnation from their religious leaders. The spirit of Murray's universalism was later distilled as give them not hell, but hope and courage. Do not push them deeper into despair, but preach kindness and everlasting love. Here's one more of my favorite stories from the early days of universalism. Hosea Balu was uh, the leader of the next generation of universalists after John Murray. And Balu was once questioned about the ways that universalism could be so permissive that it could just lead to the moral degradation of society. His interlocutor said, "'Now, Brother Baloo, if I were a universalist "'and feared not the fires of hell, "'I'd hit you over the head, "'steal your horse and saddle and ride away and I'd still go to heaven. Isn't that what you're preaching? Hosea Ballou looked over at him and calmly said, Brother, if you were a universalist, that idea would never occur to you. (laughs) There's so much more I'd like to tell you about our universalist history more broadly. But for now, I'd like to shift our focus to our theme for today, which is the life of Orestes Brownson. Patrick Carey is a theology professor who's written the best modern biography about Brownson, though uh, I think San helpfully mentioned, if you Google the Dictionary of UU Biography, it's a really tremendous resource written by many of our historians where you can get these kind of encyclopedia-length entries if you're not interested in going about many of our historic figures if you don't want to go into book-length volumes. But uh, Carey calls Brownson, I think with affection, an American religious weather vane, meaning that he just got spun all around with the changing winds. His theological orientation just changed so many times over the course of his life. More charitably, we might call Brownson an actual maverick. In contrast to the many politicians who declare themselves to be mavericks, but then you look at their voting record and it's pretty much conformist, not independent-minded, Brownson really was a maverick to a kind of a head-spinning degree. During his time as a Unitarian minister, he joined the rebellious transcendentalist wing of that movement. But among those transcendentalist rebels who valued uh, individualism, he championed, y'all need to be looking at a social idea of how the human person comes to be. He championed working-class causes, but he did not always support the labor rights movement on its own terms, believing that no lasting reform in society, as far as he saw it, could be achieved without the aid of Christianity. And although he opposed slavery on moral grounds, he rejected immediate emancipation as an unworkable solution, therefore alienating himself from the leading abolitionists of his day. Brownson, though, pursued this relentless quest for what we use call our fourth principle, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And his pilgrimage included deep, if not always long-lasting immersions into Presbyterianism, Universalism, Skepticism, Unitarianism, Transcendentalism, and Catholicism. And while I'll confess that I can personally sometimes be a bit theologically promiscuous. Uh, It's actually kind of a virtue as a UU minister. Uh, Brownson takes uh, theological promiscuity to a heretofore unforeseen level. And his life was really this restless search for a balance between freedom and communion. He just wanted both those things, freedom and communion. But despite his many shifts in loyalties, he actually wasn't a dilettante for the most part. He was not someone who merely samples one option after another without any real commitment or knowledge. Instead, in turn, he was pretty hardcore about each of those religious commitments while he was in it. And we know a fair amount about him because he wrote and published a lot. There's the seven-volume early history of early works of Orestes Brownson, which collects his writings up through 1844, the 20-volume works of Orestes Brownson, which contains his post-Catholic um, conversion material, and the five-volume Orestes Brownson works in political philosophy. So for anyone considering a career as a Brownson scholar, uh, know that you're getting yourself into quite a lot with primary sources alone. His father's family were Presbyterians, but his father died of pneumonia when he was quite young. His mother's parents were Universalists. Orestes and his twin sister Daphne were born in 1803, becoming the fourth and fifth children of that family. But after the death of Brownson's father, his mother found herself at age 29 with five children under the age of eight and forcing her to make the wrenching decision to send three of those children to live with three separate families so they could um, at least eat. I mean, they, they just had no way to make an end for themselves. Orestes was about six years old when he was sent 17 miles north to live away from his birth family for about seven years. One psychological reading of his life is that these youthful experiences of separation created in him both a strong sense of personal independence, of initiative, of self-reliance that he very much showed throughout his life, but they also put in in him this constant search for communion, for continuity, for order, for stability that was this great childhood lack that he was trying to compensate for. Tracing the turning points in his life, can feel a bit like whiplash. At age 13, he experienced a powerful conversion experience during a revival that was part of the Second Great Awakening. Next, from ages 15 to 19, he experienced a period of profound skepticism, of rational critique of all religion, what he called atheism. In 1822, at age 19, he briefly became Presbyterian for a very intense nine months before becoming a Universalist minister for for the next four years. Following that, after a brief flirtation with his previous religious skepticism, some of the hypocrisy that um, in face of hypocrisy that San mentioned earlier, he became a Unitarian minister. He was later caught up within the Transcendentalist Reform movement within Unitarianism, becoming a charter member of the Transcendentalist Club, of which many of our most famous mid-19th century ancestors were a part of. In 1844, at age 41, Brownson made his final conversion to what ended up being a quite um, orthodox and conservative version of Roman Catholicism that would dominate the final decades of his life until his death at age 72 in 1876. For me, one irony and really sadness is that despite how passionate and knowledgeable he was about religion, his conversion to Catholicism meant that he could no longer serve as a member of the clergy because he was married with children. But he maintained a zeal of a convert and in many ways even alienated many Catholics because he was sort of more Catholic than most of them. Uh, And this is like, you know, the time of Vatican I, so like papal infallibility and all of that is what's going down in the 19th century. And he didn't hold back from criticizing his former colleagues, just as he had criticized Catholicism and other perspectives during his sojourn within various um, versions of Protestantism. Of course, some of his colleagues didn't mind returning the favor. To give just two examples, one in a book-length poem titled A Fable for Critics, the Unitarian and poet James Russell Lowell. I'll do a future sermon about the whole Lowell family. Uh, It's quite interesting, that side of Unitarian history. But he included a stanza in that book-length poem titled Brownson that was explicitly skewering um, Brownson. I'll give you just an excerpt. He shifts quite about, then proceeds to expound that tis merely the earth, "'not himself that turns round, "'and wishes it clearly impressed on your mind "'that the weather vane rules and not follows the wind, "'proving first, then as deftly confuting each side, "'with no doctrine pleased that's not somewhere denied. "'He lays the denier away on the shelf "'and then down beside him lays gravely himself. "'The worst of it is that his logic is so strong.' That of two sides, he commonly chooses the wrong. If there is only one way, he'll split it in two, and first pummel this half and that black and blue. And if there's, and when we see white, well, white's white, needs no proof, but it takes a deep fellow to prove it's jet black, and that jet black is yellow. He offers the true faith to drink in a sieve, but when it reaches your lips, there's not not left to believe. In a similar vein, the Unitarian minister James Freeman Clark delivered a famous prose critique of Brownson, saying, no one has ever equaled Mr. Brownson in the ability which he has over time to refute his own arguments. He has made the most elaborate and plausible plea for for eclecticism, and later the most elaborate and plausible plea against eclecticism. He has said the very best things about transcendentalism and the very best things against it. He has satisfactorily shown the truth of socialism and its necessity to bring about a golden age, and he has, by the most convincing arguments, demonstrated that that whole socialist system is from the pit and can lead to nothing but anarchy and ruin. Now there is so much more to say about Brownson, not the least of which is all the things he said about himself over 20 plus volumes, but given the outline we have explored of just his major turning points, what lessons might there be for us today from the life and writings of this UU ancestor who was in turn a universalist and a Unitarian and so much else before, in between, and after? Well, in reflecting on Brownson, the first quote for me that always comes to mind is from Emerson's 1841 essay, Self-Reliance, in which he said, "...a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds." Well, Brownson was willing to risk what he called about himself a glorious inconsistency that for him exhibited the mind's potential for flexibility— for openness to grow as new information and insights came to light. And his commitment in his final years to Roman Catholicism is a reminder that there are those who journey with us within Unitarian Universalism for a significant season of their lives, sometimes contributing significantly to our movement, but who may not always feel they can remain even within what we try to make of a very big tent. Brown ultimately passed through universalism with its challenge to include ever more beings within our circles of care and compassion into a more narrow sectarianism. uh, He really became fond of that phrase, extra ecclesia nulla salus, which means outside of the church there is no salvation, The, the one for him church. Now, there can be a lot of value and virtue in going deeply into one path, one tradition But for those of us who do remain within the big tent of Unitarian Universalism, the challenge of our Universalist heritage is to continually lean into the challenge of what that word Universalism can mean at its best. In the words of the General Superintendent of the Universalists at the 1943 Universalist General Assembly, Universalism cannot be limited to either Protestantism or even to Christianity without denying its very name. Ours is a world fellowship, not just a Christian sect. For so long as universalism is universalism and not partialism, the fellowship bearing its name must succeed in trying to make it unmistakably clear that all are welcome. Theist and humanist, Unitarian and Trinitarian, people of all colors and ethnicities, he concluded a circumscribed universalism, Is unthinkable. In that spirit of longing to build a religious movement that is truly universal and planetary, that accounts for our Real place in the grand scheme of things as one among many species on this fragile planet that is just the third rock from the sun, part of one of more than two trillion galaxies in our solar system, part of this evolving 13.7 billion year old universe story. In the spirit of that kind of evolutionary and planetary universalism, I invite you to rise and body your spirit, turn your teal hymnals, let's sing together hymn. 1064, Blue Boat Home. So as we prepare to go into this day and to the weeks to come, I invite you to reflect some on... What does the universalist half of our heritage? What might it mean to you? How might it call or challenge you? Because it's meant different things to different people through the ages. In the 18th century, the 1700s of John Murray's day, universalism principally meant that universal salvation. It wasn't just an elect. It was a we're affirming this universal call for all people. There isn't an elect. But then it shifted. It continued to grow so that in the 19th. Century, the 1800s. It principally universalism principally became about the emancipation of slavery. It became about the equality of all people, and it being wronged and it disrespecting the inherent worth and dignity of each person for any human being to be enslaved. So that was the great 19th century struggle of universalism. In the 20th century, it became about universal suffrage. So saying that because of someone's gender, it shouldn't. So you see a lot of our universalist ancestors who were um, became. Uh, were working as abolitionists, became suffragettes, and became allies in that movement. And so then the question for us becomes, what does universalism mean in the 21st century? As some of you have heard me speak about it various times, I think it's going to mean things, or can mean things like the struggle for universal health care, the struggle for a universal basic income, the struggle for a universal college or vocational education for everyone who wants it. So access, universal access to things like that that can actually make possible a a, a society of peace, liberty, and justice, not just for some, but really for all. So in that spirit, as you go and in the days and weeks to come, may you continue your journey in love, not just for a few, not just for who it's easiest to But what might it do to try to extend that loving kindness to all that you meet, that peace that is within your control, to continue your journey in love, to do justice and make peace, and know that whatever taste and touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love or peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.